And there came a day. A day unlike... Wait. No, that's been done. Hmm. Who knows what evil lurks in... No, that is that other thing. What has yellow skin and rights? Ah, forget it. You're listening to Panelology. Excelsior, oh, damn it. Welcome to episode 259 of Panelology. I'm Alex. And I am Brian. Brian, do you know what this weekend marks? Um, uh, Mark Wahlberg, Mark, I, I don't know. But... <laughs> it is five years since we recorded the first episode of Panelology. Oh my god. We've been doing this a long time, sir. Yes. Uh eagle-eyed listeners may go like uh the date for episode one is actually for the following week well we had an unaired pilot we did have an unaired pilot yes uh jen's microphone was not turned on and we were not able to use that episode but we have now been doing this for half a decade yikes (laughs) (laughs) Uh, wow Uh, wow you really hate man. I don't even know what to say to that. <laughs> we have we have seen two DC reboots now. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, we have. Ah, uh, Padology lasted longer than Rebirth. <laughs> Does that make it now Panelology Afterbirth? <laughs> DC Afterbirth. Um. Which I believe is a joke we made at some point. When that yes, yeah. I, I, I believe specifically Mike made that joke. That I, I sounds so. like a Mike Kane special. Does sound like a Mike Kane special. Yeah, which is super odd because uh, going through the uh, going through our shared uh, document site the other day, I did happen to stumble across the uh, the panelology drinking game rules as well, which I thought was yeah. rather humorous. Yeah. So anytime Jen snorts during this episode, we will finish our drinks. Hey, we will. Right after I have my hostess fruit pie. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's get into it. We have a special treat this week. Uh, in the second half of the episode, we will be cutting to an interview we had with Chris Grine, who I think I can call a friend at this point, actually. He is the uh, comic creator adapting Animorphs, whose latest creator-owned graphic novel, The Secrets of Camp Whatever recently came out uh he spent some time talking to us about both of those books especially camp whatever uh he's also kind of a temporary co-host on minds at york at the moment yeah uh so that is coming up but first let's talk about this week's comics or last week's comics the most recent comics released there you go five years later still bad at words <laughs> yes but we're better recording those bad words <laughs> that's true black hammer visions number three written by chips darsky art by johnny christmas colors by dave stewart letters by nate Piekos, and design by ethan kimberling um so again if uh if you're not familiar the visions uh black hammer visions 
series is uh, different creative teams coming in to tell stories set in the Black Hammer universe. Specifically, at least so far, they've been set before they uh, they they went to the farm, before they had their final battle, and uh, and uh, the first series um, took place. This one in particular is uh, th- this is. As much as Black Hammer, all of it is kind of pastiche, right? Mm-hmm. This one is also, and very much so, to uh, the recent Falcon and Winter Soldier story going on. Oh, yeah? Um, this is Abraham Slam. Um, after he has retired, he is older now, um, and the government introduces a new, a new superhero named the slam who carries a gun and like all of these things. And like, he's has a real tough time with it and, you know, goes to confront him. And, uh, it's chip very, very much knew what he was doing in not just telling a story in this universe, but capturing that pastiche feel of the original series. I think. Awesome. Um, because not only is there that there's a scene where, um, a, a, an African American family is leaving a theater and looking for their car, and get assaulted by hoodlums, and you know the pearls get ripped off the wife's neck, and yeah, so mm. we get that. Um, we get a very, very much a uh, kingpin type character that shows up for a panel or two. Uh, just like I said, just well, well done. I, I very much enjoyed this. Awesome. I'm enjoying all of these, but th- this one in particular I thought was uh, was quite good. I look forward to checking these out when they come out in trade. Yeah. Batman The Detective number one. Written by Tom Taylor, with art by Andy Kubert, colors by Brad Anderson, and letters by Clem Robbins. So, Brian. Yes. Was I the only one surprised by the tone of this book? Not at all. Yeah, I think I've come to expect, and it's funny because maybe I shouldn't. If we talk about Tom Taylor writing in-continuity superhero books, I expect something a little more optimistic normally, like All-New Wolverine, like Nightwing, something Mm -hmm. that is more in the daylight in a way. But then I also remember he writes Injustice, and he writes Deceased, and okay, maybe it's not all sunshine and warm feelings (laughs) this certainly isn't um but even then this feels a little different it's very almost melancholy on bruce's part yeah it's not the the borderline horror that like injustice and dc star right Uh, and i would definitely throw injustice in that i mean it is it is a dystopian like yeah yeah so this Um, is this is set in the future mm mm-hmm we don't know how far necessarily, but it's a future where Batman is without a Bat family. Um, so, and this, we we do believe this is in continuity, correct? I have no reason to believe it's not. It was solicited as sometime in the future. It was. Um, which, the, I'll be honest, the biggest kind of sticking point for me with that is there's no mention of Selina in it. Well, you know, though, all the language around Batman Catwoman mm-hmm. has started describing it as an alternate future. <sighs> 
Well, we still don't know in continuity what Selena and Bruce's answer is. They've given themselves a year. I know. I, I understand that. But I, I, if they go back to them not having some kind of relationship, I'm not saying they have to get married and, you know, have the life that's presented in Batman Catwoman and all of that. But if they don't continuously have some sort of definite relationship, I, I think they have wasted an absolutely platinum opportunity. <laughs> that, I, I definitely get that. I also don't think any of that falls at Tom Taylor's footsteps. For it, the, doesn't. Uh, it doesn't. At Tom but, Taylor's feet. Like, and, and, and they could have, specifically the, the scene where that talks about him leaving the cave forever, mm -hmm. right? The, the fact that they would put that kind of a definite thing in this and then not mention that in any way. Yeah. It's the only thing that, yeah. Yeah. Well, and, I mean, we also know the future is kind of in flux right now. Yes, that's true. There's a lot about the future of Batman, right. but also how much a future state comes true. Well, that is and, very and much honesty, an open question. Yeah, that's always been the problem with writing stories set in the future in yeah. comics, right? Is... You know, when you talk about Legion of Superheroes, it's a whole lot easier, right? Mm -hmm. When you talk, you know, <laughs> what, a thousand years in the future? Well, sure. But right. even even though looking more recently, the Batman Beyond run that just ended at the end of last year was set in the future of right. Earth Zero. It's the, that and the, like, short run that preceded Rebirth are the only time that's been true of Batman Beyond. And we saw things that happened in present day have almost instantaneous effect in the future, like when Tim Drake disappeared in Detective, right? He disappeared from Batman Beyond. Yeah, and 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 that was that was the the kind of the next point I was making. I think writing things specifically like Batman Beyond mm -hmm. are a lot more. I don't think they're impossible. They're a lot more difficult. Well, that they have, to worked, have a lot more thought given to them. Yeah, that worked because Dan Jurgens was writing that book, and Dan Jurgens was writing Action Comics, which sure. was the whole Mister Oz plot that involved Tim. Right. So he yep. sort of knew what Tim's timeline trajectory was. Yep. Um, point being, I appreciate it when they do give thought to that and make that consideration. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. How's that? Now, that being said, let's get back to this book. Let's, damn, it's good. <laughs> yes. Um, the thing that I think sets this apart as unique to me is... This is very much about a Batman asking himself the question, has it mattered? Right. And the inciting event for this story is what looks like maybe just some sort of terrorist cell killing off an airplane full of people in Batman's name. Yes. Uh, I don't. I don't want to say what he realizes at the end of this issue is the reason right. why that plane... But it raises the question, not only has he made a difference, but what happens if people undo the good he's done? Yeah. Uh, the the tone, or I guess the, the, the timing and the framing of the Batman that's in this reminded me a lot of the Ben Affleck Batman. From, yeah. From, like, Justice League, where he's older, he is uh, a lot less certain about what he and he's starting to question you know some of those things of like have i made have i made a difference yeah. that kind of thing yeah i've i've seen some comments about this 
that have thought about Frank Miller's take on Batman. Yeah. And maybe this as an alternative to that. I think I think we'll see where this goes. And I can certainly see those those sort of Tom Taylor threads that are places where this can have kind of like the the end of all new Wolverine can have those sort of moments of reflection and revelation that are more maybe optimistic than what this seems at its outset. All right. Can we, can we talk next about the, uh, the other two people that are in this? Yes. Yes. I absolutely love this idea. Yeah, It's well, it's really nice too. Now that we are in infinite frontier to see these two characters who, yes, iterations of them were in, the new 52, but they were in the new 52 and Grant Morrison's Batman incorporated, which basically just got to keep going from pre flashpoint with minor adjustments. So it's nice to see these characters back in the world after they ended their run. And these characters went back in the toy box. Uh, It's nice to see them out in the world again. Yeah. It is Knight and squire. Yes. Which I believe this knight is the former squire. I believe that is correct. And Knight has taken a new squire. Yes. All right. So, super brief, because I have to set this up, because it's my quote of the week. Brian's quote of the week. Super brief. Uh, So, uh, Batman and Squire are investigating the scene of where this happens, and um, uh, a different gentleman ghost shows up. I love this whole scene, by the way. Right. Which, uh, uh, you know, Batman ends up fighting Gentleman Ghost and using these gloves that he got from John Constantine mm-hmm. to, to actually fight the ghost, right? So then he goes and visits the knight in the hospital where she's been injured. And uh, she's, you know, he's like, are you okay? And then she, she is like, yeah. So uh, I see you met my new squire. And he's like, yeah. Did you impress the hell out of her? I don't know what you're talking about. Oh, come on. I punched a ghost. There it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I really I really like this squire too. And I love the the, the the just the happy smile that's on his face as he says, I punched a ghost. <laughs> yeah. See that's the kind of thing where like you see those Tom Taylor moments. Yes. In this. Absolutely. I love the squire too though. Yes. Yeah. God, this it, this is really good. Yeah. I, I'm yeah, super happy. I don't think we've mentioned this is the first part of a six issue miniseries. Yeah. Strongly, strongly recommend it. Indeed, indeed. Let's talk about Batman Urban Legends number two, our anthology book. Yes. First up, we have Batman and Red Hood in Cheer, part two of six. This is written by Chip Zdarsky, art by Eddie Barrows with Hebert Ferreira and Julio Ferreira. Marcus Toe does flashback art. Colors are by Adriano Lucas and letters are by Becca Carey. I think of all of the stories in this issue, mm-hmm. this is the one that maybe shows us, instead of a new layer, digs deeper into what the first issue introduced. Into the, the character beats and relationships Without, I mean, most of most of this issue is what a couple of of phone calls, basically, yeah, and some flashback. But it's so good. Oh my god, Chip just absolutely destroys me with this story. Right, this is just this is just 
heartbreaking. And I mean, it absolutely shows on on uh, um, Jason's face and and yeah. in his. I just. I mean, uh, there's there's a sequence that ties together Jason explaining how he thinks about Batman as sort of another failed parent, right? With Batman punching him out. Yeah. And it's like the starkest possible way to sort of make clear maybe this thing that's obvious when you lay out the pieces, but because of comics and storytelling over decades, like never exactly gets played that way. Yeah. Oh, Oh. wow. Then we have our new one shot for the issue, which I really dug. I I was a little disappointed. This is only a one shot. I want to see more of this creative team. Uh, Oracle in Ghost in the Machine. Written by Cecil Castellucci. Art and colors by Marguerite Savage. And letters by Becca Carey. I really liked this. Yeah, this was a fun little... It it was exactly that, though. I think if it was a story, it it may not feel as light. Maybe. No, sure. Like, I think think this is a great taste of a Batgirl story. A a Barbara Gordon story, I should say. Mm -hmm. Um, But I would... I would love to see this team maybe give us a five-issue miniseries, maybe do a run on Babs. And you know what? Even if nothing else comes out of this other than the fact that basically Barbara builds like this new tech suit mm-hmm. that lets her just walk around as Barbara Gordon in Gotham and still do everything she needs to do as Oracle. Yeah. And just the fact that, you know, she is not, in the same situation she was in when she was Oracle before, right? Mm-hmm. And the fact that she can get out and be out actively looking at things and doing yeah. things is, is very cool to me. I uh, She's up against this villain called uh, Vi Ross, uh-huh. who oh, wow. is like, a former that, epidemi- like, Yeah, That is the most 70s supervillain name. <laughs> well, hang tight, because I'm, I'm building to something here. She's this former epidemiologist yeah. turned, like, cyber criminal who uses actual pathogen spread as models for her crimes yeah did you happen to catch the name tag uh, yeah. she was wearing at I one did. point pat, pat hogan. hogan yeah mm-hmm. that pat is hogan. in fact the best <laughs> yes i absolutely caught that <laughs> our third story is the outsiders in the caretaker part two of three this is written by Brandon Thomas, art is by Max Dunbar, colors by Luis Guerrero, and letters by Steve Wands. I love Black Lightning and Metamorpho together in this. How how great are they? I do too. I also we also find out who is kind of behind this. Yes, and who and who the titular caretaker is. I was ab this is not something I foresaw. Or, or saw coming. Um, it it was funny because we get we get a little bit of of katana speaking in a mix of English and Japanese, and I took a little Japanese in college. I took a year of it. I have forgotten most of it because I don't have a chance to use it. But one word I remember is okasan, which at one point she addresses her her captor by. I'm like, mother. Yeah, and then a page or so later, we learn it is in fact uh, her mother-in-law. Yes, uh, who is upset that she has lost the soul of 
her husband of Masia. Yes. Which, it's really fun, by the way, to read this in light of the uh, I, I the was... John Ridley yeah. other history of the DC universe. Like uh-huh. the idea that Katata is sitting there in this situation, like, no, this was never true, but I'm going to commit to the bit. Like, I don't think it's meant to be read that way, but it's a fun sort of lens to view basically everything she does now. It, it is. It absolutely is. And of course, you know, it's comics, so who knows what... Yeah. Why are they both not real? Because, sure. Yeah. Uh, I will not be surprised if the third part of this gives us our explanation for, in future state, why was Black Lightning living lightning? Oh, that could very well be, yeah. Our final story, Grifter in the Long Con, Part 2 of 5, written by Matthew Rosenberg, art by Ryan Benjamin, colors by Antonio Fabella, and letters by Saida Timofante. So we learn a little more about Halo here. We do. We learn that it was a part of Grifter's creation. Mm-hmm. And we also learn that like there are some... there's. Maybe not a strong relationship between Lucius Fox and Grifter, but a long one between them. Lucius Fox was part of the team that made Grifter into who he is. Yes. Uh, We also get introduced to a new character named Chance uh, Aditi. Yes. And I absolutely... uh, Her... (laughs) This, this, I, I will say, to start out, this is my favorite Grifter story I have ever read. That that actually sounds right. I I like Grifter a lot for someone who's never loved most of the Grifter stories I've read. Like he's a character yeah. who shines through. I think in those. I think you're absolutely right. There's and they almost they almost go in a bad direction with it. But I should I should have known knowing yeah. he's writing this that it would not. But like when so when Chance shows up, he says that, you know um he's something he thinks that it's a cop and he's taking their hand he's like here i'll give you back your handcuffs he's and then she opens the curtain he's like or you can use them on me if you want she's like gross <laughs> <He's> like, <laughs> yeah that was me trying to be cute yeah i got that and like and then there's this awkward thing where they trade some stuff and she's like well yeah i'd probably be i'd probably be already gone if you didn't have your shirt off or something like that and he's like it's right back like they are absolutely you you see them completely here as equal like there's no one way or the other and it is yeah and then we learn that she is his boss yes (laughs) i also like this this story ends with the i'm i'm assuming beginning of a conflict between grifter and red hood and i like the idea of these two characters sort of at odds with each other. Can, can we talk a minute about the note that he leaves? We cannot spoil the note that he leaves, but we can we can voice our appreciation for the note that he leaves. Uh, I, I mean, I, I think the, the, the note itself doesn't give anything away. I, I, like, the circumstances of it certainly do. Well, uh, the, the way it's signed certainly does. Okay. I don't want to spoil that. Okay, anyway. Fair enough, fair enough. Oh, it's yeah, I, I <laughs> beautiful, just yeah. beautiful. I'm I'm glad to see that as excited as we was as we were for the idea of this like just Gotham anthology book, yep. that it is just firing on all cylinders. I 100% agree. 
Then we have the Joker number two. I remain mad that this book is as good as it is. Uh, I, I don't, not in any shape or form, because holy shit. I don't want to read a book about the Joker, but... Well, you're not... I'm you're, not. You're reading yeah. a book that has the Joker in it, but it yeah. is. <laughs> uh, our main feature here is, of course, called The Joker. It is really Jim Gordon. Uh, this is written by James Tynan IV, art by Guillaume March, colors by Arif Prianto, and letters by Tom Napolitano. I think I think there's one major reason why we want to talk about this story, this issue. There is before before, before we, get to we that, do, though. yeah, because I think we have to call spoilers for that. We do, we do. Before we get to that, let's talk about maybe generally the story, and then let's talk about punchline, and we'll come back to to the big bit. Can can I say the just how the hell much is going on in this book? There are a lot of moving parts. Wow. Like uh, the whole Santa Prisca thing. Uh-huh. Right? You've got that going on. You've got, uh, obviously, the, the part that we're going to talk about in a bit. You've got the person, the storyline that's going on with the person that hired Jim Gordon. Yeah. That's not going to be small. Now, I feel like... You've I got... feel like... In a lot of ways, this book is going to be the sort of thing that follows sort of a parallel path to what's going on in Batman, and then come maybe the end of a year of storytelling, the two sort of come back together. Well, and I get the feeling that this whole, the whole part of this that has to do with Joker right now, that he's actually in, Uh is it's going to be its own thing here for an issue or two. Oh, yeah. No yeah. doubt. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, so, holy cow, yeah. Uh, but just not only the the setup, but the actual co- character conflicts that occur in this book are... Oh, they're incredible. And, like, I forget sometimes how much I love Jim Gordon. Yeah. And this issue is a great reminder of just... The ways in which he will commit to the bit for the good of the bit mm-hmm. for as long as that is healthy and sustainable, but the fact that he can recognize when that stops being the case. I, I mean, it's why he was such a good cop, right? Yeah. Yeah. Same same instincts, yeah. Um, let's talk a little bit about Punchline before we come back to, to the thing we want to spend some time on. Uh, this is written by Sam Johns and James Tynan IV. Art is by Mirka Andolfo. Colors by Romulo Fayardo Jr. And letters by Ariana Mar. Colors be beautiful. Uh... Colors be beautiful. Art be beautiful. Writing yeah. be beautiful. Uh, yeah. We we meet a new character here who is not a character I expected. Uh, but I like that this character sort of exists and I like the the take he has. I hope he is on the up and up here. Uh, in the course of investigating punchline bluebird finds through through like a series of conversations with former classmates finds this guy who like everyone described as her best friend her right hand her whatever and she finds him breaking into a condemned dorm building and what we learn is yes he is alexis k's best friend and he does not know what happened to her to make her punchline right he does not recognize punchline as alexis and he wants to get to the bottom of how his friend went bad yeah yeah not my alexis right yeah 
Yes. And that's not what I expected at all, but I really no. like that. I like that too. I do. And then we got the second storyline going on where it's actually her in prison, right? Kind of she's taken over from the Queen of Spades, right? Mm-hmm. And we find out what the Queen's play is to um, regain her throne, shall we say. Yeah, we're going to call spoilers now because Jim Gordon makes some requests of Batman. And Batman mostly acquiesces to those requests under one condition. Yeah. Gordon will not kill the Joker. He will call Batman and have Batman bring him in. To 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 be more specific, and I, I, I'm being specific because I think it's critically important in this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> is he's not saying, he doesn't tell Jim Gordon not to kill, because he never assumes that. He says, don't go after him and try to bring him in alone. That's fair. In the context of Gordon's narrative, like, that Correct. is the, what I'm describing is sort of Gordon's binary. Exactly. Batman's binary right. is, and, yeah. but, Right. I, I want to make it clear that Bat, it never even occurs to Batman. Well, I don't know that it doesn't occur to him. He never voices that it occurs yeah. to him. And Gordon... Says yes, that makes sense. Super, Oracle is on. Brief. We have we have to talk about how Jim got Batman there to talk to him, though. The the tiny bat signal. He literally has like a, a big flashlight with with a bat thing on it that he just shined out shone out his window. Yeah, <laughs> it's great. Um, well, that's how you that's how you summon tiny Batman. <laughs> Hold me closer, tiny Batman. There's the episode uh, title. There it is. <laughs> there it is. So, um, yeah. Batman also says, you know, I will have Oracle on comms with you. Oracle says, yeah, cool. By the way, he didn't pr- He didn't say he agreed. He just said that makes sense. Yeah. Batman realizes what is going on. Yep. Jim Gordon throws a smoke bomb, metaphorically. Oh, I think it's bigger than a smoke bomb. <laughs> a truth bomb, if you will, literally. <laughs> yeah. And addresses Oracle as Barbara. Yeah, yeah, he said, uh, yeah, he didn't actually say he would agree to it, just that it doesn't make sense. And his response is, are you sure you're not just worried about your old man, Barbara? <laughs> yeah. I, I felt equally as shocked as Batman and Barbara are displayed in that moment. Holy right. crap. And like, and Gordon's monologue goes into, and now now Batman's wondering what else I know. How long uh-huh. have I known this? How long have I sat on it? like... I, the thing I love, the other thing I love in this, there are so many things I love. Um, Gordon never actually confirms or denies in his monologue whether he knows or not. He just acknowledges he knows Batman is wondering. Correct. The other thing is, um, I, I don't know if you picked up on this, but after that little bomb, he still never gave an answer. <laughs> oh, I know. <laughs> um... Oracle invites him to the watchtower, to the Uh clock tower, to have a chat. Uh, They go for a walk and talk and (laughs) unpack all of this. Um, We get get actually some, I mean, this entire issue is great. The heart of this, the single, like, I would not be surprised if come the end of of this series, whatever this series looks like. Yeah. I would not be surprised if we don't still look back on this issue and say this conversation between Jim and Barbara yep. is the best thing about it. It is an incredible, like, comics history moment. Can I also point out, as I talked earlier about how 
how much I love them not forgetting about things, right? Being consistent with continuity. Mm -hmm. The fact that there was something that happened in Batgirl number 50. That's, yep. Yeah. Where Jim said to Barbara, I, uh, I blame Batgirl for what happened to James. This And like, they don't forget to do that. They bring that back up, and he's like, yeah, I did. That was a heat-of-the-moment thing. That wasn't fair. But just the fact that they acknowledge that mm -hmm. takes all of the potential sting or you know anything else out of it, right? Yeah. Yeah. There's also this great little bit in the art when they're talking, and he's talking about how he's still, like, whenever he closes his eyes, sees the Joker, right? That idea that sort of thematically yeah. at the core of this. We see the, the, the Joker in sort of that killing joke costume reflected in his glasses. Yes. And and I don't want to forget this in the in the talking about. So Barbara says, you know, I, I, I noticed you, she points, I noticed basically you still never answered that question, right? Yeah. yeah. And he's like, yeah, well, that's because they didn't hire me to bring him in. They hired me to kill him. To which she's shocked, right? And she's like, but you're considering it. And he's like, well, I'm not not considering it. Yeah. And there's like just this panel of dead silence between them. And like Barbara is not outraged at this. Right. I, Which is the first. Well, she understands. She does. And, uh, you know, her answer is, I won't help you kill him. He's like, yeah, I, I know. But here's the thing. I will tell you, I won't kill him unless I can convince you that it's the right thing to do. Right. Like, yeah. he's he's basically telling her, yes, I know that. Specifically in the heat of the moment, I may not be able to make the right choice in regards to this. So I'm kind of giving you permission to be my conscience. Well, I also like the other side of that, which is he's talking about taking this job so he can retire, so he can mm -hmm. be a whole human. And I think a part of that math is like, if he's going to... to Make sure Barbara's taking care of when he's gone. He's going to want something to leave her. If he is just going to be a retired person, he probably doesn't want to feel like some sort of imposition on her. I imagine these are normal things one thinks about when retiring. I don't know. I'm a millennial. I'll never get to. But there's something in that that reads as the sloppy way, maybe, to write it is, I'm doing this for you. And this reads as a version of that that I think is more emotionally aware that is i'm not going to do this with you being a factor in my decision without your being okay with it correct right uh and i like that that sort of emotional nuance yes i do too i do super ready? good yep. oh my god so good this was a bombshell i loved it ready for more lock and key the sandman hell and gone number one Written by Joe Hill, art by Gabriel Rodriguez, colors by Joy Fotos, and letters by Sean Lee. So yeah, this is our um this is our first uh setup piece of, of this story. And it has uh I I, I want to be clear on this. This is not the current day um uh Locke family. Okay. These are their ans this is some of their ancestors. Specifically in nineteen twenty seven is when this is set. So is this around the time that Sandman got locked up leading to Sandman number one? Funny you should say that. Okay. <laughs> it this is immediately 
prior to that. <laughs> okay. Yes. Um, yes, she goes to visit someone. So um, we get the story that her younger brother um, it, it was in World War One, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, was fighting and to escape the chlorine gas that was coming for him. Is he, this the same branch of the Locke family who we followed in on Pell Battalions Go? Yes. Okay. Yes. Uh, which I think is why that came out before this. Gotcha. Right? I'm just um, connecting all kind of dots. All you kind of absolutely dots here, aren't I? are. Uh, yeah. So, you know, he escaped back to the house and some soldiers followed him and killed the mother, right? Mm-hmm. Like that whole thing. And then he couldn't deal with that and killed himself. So now, essentially, kind of both of them are in hell. And it's driven the father to, you know, basically near insanity trying to deal with it. So it's the one of the daughters that we follow in this story. Okay. And she goes to visit uh, Witch Cross in England to... Uh, talk to someone because she is prepared. She is trying to find a way to get to hell to make a deal with a demon mm-hmm. for the for her brother and mother, um, and wants to know how to do that and how she can make the best deal. But you know, make a good deal essentially, right? And she has found out that somebody here maybe has somebody she can talk to that will do that. And so she shows up, and the son is wearing the um, the gas mask-ish helmet of the Dreaming. Yeah. Uh, and, of course, she doesn't recognize it as anything. He's like, yeah, I like to wear it when I lay down and rest because it gives me cool dreams. <laughs> right? And we find out that she is trying to make a deal with this guy's father, who is uh, uh, the um, person who captured Morpheus. Gotcha. Yeah, and that's who she wants to talk to. He doesn't say anything to her. <laughs> <laughs> um, part of that, though, is uh, so she ends up coming back, and and it, it really is more about this guy's son and her, because she gives him the anywhere key, because he is always wanting to go to America. So she lets him take a brief trip to America, while she uh, uh, rests on his bed wearing the helm and the. Uh, and you know the the gym amulet, mm-hmm. and because she is resting wearing that, she wakes up outside the house of mystery, <laughs> <laughs> and ends up going in. And everybody mistakes her for Morpheus in a new skin because she's wearing the the raiments of his office, right? Yep. And wow, it's God only knows where it's going to go from here. But it is this is just a great big mess, <laughs> and I awesome. love it. I absolutely love it. It sounds like a lot of fun. Homesick Pilots number five. The end of the first arc? Yes. Uh, so we had said after number one that this was a contender for both of our favorite books of 2021. Uh, let's check in here at the end of the arc. Brian, how do you feel about that statement? Uh, that ghost kaiju's for the win. That's... Yep. <laughs> yeah, this is... I definitely think this will still be clocking in at or near the top of my list of favorites for the year. Unless the second half of this year is just unfathomably buck wild. Yeah, this is this this book is absolutely and the 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 setup for the next part. Oh, I can't wait. I can't yeah. Wait. yeah. We uh oh, so good. We almost just have to call spoilers for this issue as a whole to hit the highlights. 
Uh, if you haven't been reading this, you definitely should be. If you don't know why yet and want to hear the spoilers, okay, cool. Um, spoilers. Amy makes the house into a giant robot by coordinating with all the ghosts that haunt it and taking control of it. She Voltrons the house, yes. Her friends are in danger. Uh, her friends, and let's also say Meg, who is and still Meg. alive. Uh, oh, wow, wasn't she, didn't cons- and is covered with the blood of her friends. Yes, like yes. straight up end of carry. Yes, like, like can't get it off covered in their blood. Yeah. Yes. Um, she goes to save them from the, the government agents, sort of government agents, who are working with TFT, the cassette tape, or video cassette tape, to take down the house. Um, one friend goes with her, one friend stays with the government and with Meg. Yes. And we get a little time jump at the end. We do. Indeed. And as government's going to do what the government does, it decides to find a way to weaponize Ghost House and builds its own Ghost House for Meg to pilot. Uh, some Evangelion vibes maybe there at the end. And and what is what is this new creation called? Well, it's the nuclear bastard. Of course it is. <laughs> oh, I I can't wait for this. I this this book is just the fucking best. Uh it is. Casper Wingard's art, I say every oh. time, but every time it's more and more true. Just next level. No joke. No absolute and just the way the art the way it's colored fits this art so absolutely perfectly it does there's there's in that like time like right at the the end before the time jump there's this panel where like it's the next morning and you see like soft green grass and you're like wait when was the last time i saw green in this book really really smart use of color yeah also, you know, Dan Waters can write a book. Aditya Bidikar's lettering is always some of the best. Everything about this Everything. is just... Everything good. Mm, perfect. Tom the, Muller the design. Panelology, good, good book of approval. I think. Yes. All right. Uh, one more before Is It Still Good? Spider-Man, Spider's Shadow number one. This is written by Chip Zdarsky. Art is by Pasquale Ferry. Colors are by Matt Hollingsworth, and letters are by Joe Caramagna. Uh, This is the beginning of Marvel putting a real new push on What If. Uh, Chip has designed a nice little What If logo that uh, makes me think a little bit of the Criterion Collection, which I think is sort of a cool way of of, uh, maybe thinking about this. This is a four-issue miniseries, hopefully the first of many, and it's basically asking the question, okay, what if Spider-Man never took off the symbiote suit? And one of the things I think that works really nicely about it is you get specific recognizable plot beats, but I think it works well regardless of what version of that story you've seen. Yeah, It doesn't get super deep in the weeds and the whole... Uh, uh battle world secret war thing like that's basically prologue um you start with peter waking up and he's already still wearing the suit uh you see him at one point go to read to study the suit and he refuses to take it off 
it's so much just watching this suit kind of feed on him. It very smartly uses the fact that with the hindsight of so many versions of this story in in popular culture, we know where it's going. The story knows we know where it's going. So it sort of leans into that monster feeding on Peter kind of energy. Uh, and you get this really great, very Peter Parker explanation for not giving it up to read. You're telling me this is a living thing. Well, if it's a living thing, I can't just give it over to you to study and keep in a cage. Uh-huh. And it's clear that like it's already influencing him, his anger as he says that, his defensiveness. All of that is clearly being exacerbated by this. Um, we see him fight and unmask and threaten hobgoblin and we see that come back after he refuses to take off the suit to bite him um this goes to a much darker place by the end of the first issue than i expected it to in the first issue Uh, i have no clue where it goes after this and i am very excited to see it uh cannot recommend it enough pasquale fairy and matt hollingsworth's art is fantastic we get we do get at the end of this a new black spider-man suit venom peter parker design that's very creepy and very cool so i definitely definitely recommend this even if even if like you don't read a lot of spider-man comics if you just know the venom story from the cartoon or whatever i think you can still get a lot out of this is it still good eros psyche number two Uh, We start to learn about maybe some of the constant emotional trauma being inflicted on the students in the school. The Last Witch, number four, Brian. Um, We get introduced to a new character who is amazingly awesome. And uh, Cherie starts to hunt down the, the next Wind Witch. Proctor Valley Road, number two, Brian. Um... August takes it upon herself to go find the missing boys, and um, let's just say, I guess she finds them. The next Batman, Second Son, Chapter 7. We see the fallout of the police's raid on Ratcatcher for the police, for Renee Montoya, for the Fox family. And that all really comes to a head in a conversation and a conflict between... Luke and Lucius. Rorschach, number seven. Uh, Our main character has a sit-down with the latest witness to Rorschach's ongoings, Frank Miller. Superman, number 30. Uh, We have the main story, The One Who Fell, which is about Superman getting a call from a planet far away uh, about this entity the sort of 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 shadow virus that consumes all light and almost destroyed the planet that he had helped uh uh contain years and years ago and he and john respond to this and learn that something is not right on this planet uh there's also the tales of metropolis ambush bug this picks up the uh, story we saw in the first issue with Bibbo Babowski and these two uh, uh, sort of puppet master aliens. But this this is Ambush Bug in a conflict with one of them. And Ambush Bug has some moves. 
Ambush Bug does have some moves, yeah. yeah. Wonder Woman, number 771. We have Afterworlds, part two. Uh, Diana tries to investigate the mysterious missing warriors. Thor does not give a fuck, and Diana does not care for Thor. Um, but maybe she starts to make progress when she meets a one-eyed man hanging from the world tree on her way to steal an eagle's egg to give to Nidhogg to, uh, get a key? And also maybe don't trust Ratatosk. Maybe so. Uh, we also have young Diana in the Lessons Learned backup. This picks up where the last issue's backup left off. Diana's now being taught the history and to tell the stories of Themyscira, but learns that maybe some of those stories are lost, and she wants to find them. Children of the Atom, number two, Brian. Oh boy, um, turns out everybody still loves Dazzler. Yep. Um, the big conflict may be uh, whether the, the, the codename should be Daycrawler or Nighty Nightcrawler. <laughs> Uh, they have a, uh, the, the children of the Atom have a rematch against uh, uh, Hell's Bells, and uh, Storm and Mystique pretty much tell the Avengers to fuck off. <laughs> As a quick aside, how great is the way Vita Ayala writes Storm? Yes. Absolutely. I mean, they they don't. They essentially say, "Okay, you came and told us what you wanted to tell you. It's our deal now. Um, why don't you deal with the fact that you that these idiots are passing this law rather than trying to make it about applying it to just these mutant kids?" Yeah, yeah. Daredevil number twenty nine to complete the Kwadarski. Uh Daredevil has been poisoned. Elektra has taken on a protege. And we learn Foggy Nelson's most important lesson. You can't punch a dancing man. Fantastic Four, number 30. Uh, this is King and Black tie-in. Uh, ben and Johnny say some things that they shouldn't, but that are also true. Guardians of the Galaxy, number 13. We see the Guardians in their new status quo as superheroes and not just a band of fuck-ups. Uh, being pointed at or intentionally finding problems to fix in space. And maybe one of those problems is a fire-worshipping scroll cult from centuries earlier. Power Pack number five, Brian. Uh, this is the last issue of this uh, little run. Um, the kids have to fight Wolverine, the evil twin <laughs> of Wolverine. <laughs> And we find out that all of the power kids apparently could should go into theater because oh my god, this is the best little production uh, I have ever. This is amazing. You, you absolutely, even if you don't read the whole thing, you have to read this scene. Okay, it is so good. Does this make Wolver? Does this make it the case that Wolverine is the best at what he does, and what he does is very not nice? Nope, he is. Let's see. Um, it's actually in here. Hang on. I well, nope. Then don't spoil it. Let, okay. let, make me read it. Make okay. me read it. You will have to read it. It is. It's actually in here. Okay. Uh, the autumnal number six. As we near the equinox, Cat realizes that uh, maybe desperate measures are called for, and everyone else thinks maybe Cat has lost her mind. 
the picture of everything else number three holy fuck this book is also good the englishman paints his perfect ideal of paris and because his whole thing is changing reality with his painting paris transforms into that ideal and now we take you to three days ago and our conversation with chris grine we're here now with chris grine who is uh adapting the animorphs books into comics has recently released his creator-owned graphic novel secrets of camp whatever uh and has written some other things that maybe we'll get into too welcome to the show chris hi thanks for having me thanks for being had (laughs) i feel like i've been had that that fits that fits Chris is at the unique disadvantage for our guests. He has uh, recorded five episodes of Minds at York with us now. So I'm under the impression that we have rapport and that I can torture him a little more than a normal guest. Absolutely. And I just do that with all of the guests. I would be disappointed if you guys don't. I mean, come on. Uh, Before we dig into it, we will ask you the same question we ask every first time guest on Panelology. As a fan, how did you get into nerdy stuff and comics? <clears throat> so, like, nerdy stuff beyond comics? Or any specifically of it, comics? Any of it, all of it. Like, a lot of the folks we have come through, their answer is, well, comics by way of Voltron or by way of... I mean, for me, for me, it was cartoons, adaptations of comics before comics. So, like, however, however that story works out, there's no wrong answer. I, I actually didn't get into comics really until middle school. Um, believe it or not, I kind of I kind of lived very rural, and uh, uh, to the best of my knowledge, we really didn't have any comic uh, stores near us. So I just it just wasn't something that I was I had access to. But I was always you know Saturday morning cartoons, um, and then movies and Transformers, and um, you know I was kind of a kid of the '80s, so I had you know Masters of the Universe, Transformers, GI Joe, that kind of stuff. So I kind of made up my own nerdy stuff. Uh, super into Star Wars and and all that but it was about middle school where one of my friends had kind of introduced me to wolverine who i mean believe it or not i'd gone almost through the entire seventh grade before i really was aware of who wolverine was i mean i just was so out of the loop (laughs) but uh i immediately uh we did find a comic book shop and i bought almost every issue of wolverine wow um over probably a summer and I was totally into that. I just loved the storytelling, and that kind of got me into it. And then I, I kind of got onto uh, Jeff Smith's Bone, uh, also uh, the Tick, the original run. I think oh, it was yeah, yeah, twelve or thirteen issues, I think. But uh, and I've still got those. And you know, it was stuff like that. I, I quickly learned like I really liked Wolverine, and I like good storytelling, good grounded stuff like that. But then I also, but I really craved humor, like the things that were funny. Uh, or at least things that I thought were funny, and they were kind of uh, few and far between back then. I mean, there was always somebody doing something, but it wasn't. There just wasn't as many things to choose from. So, but that's kind of how I got into it. So, did you from then on, like, actively want to get into writing comics, drawing comics, creating comics, or was that its own sort of separate journey for you? I don't know, because I was, I remember just from a very early age, like kindergarten, and I was drawn before that, but it was seemed like kindergarten, first grade where I was, I, I had, I was creating my own characters, 
you know, I wasn't doing anything with them, but I would create these characters and I would draw them over and over and I would do have them doing different things. So I, whether or not I was aware of it or not at the time, uh, I was creating my own characters. I was creating stories for them. So I was, it was kind of a precursor to, you know, writing comics and, and, and just doing sequential art and stuff. Cause I used to do little flip books. <laughs> my dad would bring home giant pads of paper, like almost like gigantic uh, post-it notes, but I swear there must've been like 200 of them on this stack. <laughs> I would do these wild, probably very terrible now, you know, if I ever had a chance to look back at them, but just little, you know, little animations and stuff. So I was always telling stories and doing that. It was, it wasn't pro, and, and I even remember middle school and high school where I was still I was creating characters, and it, probably high school I was creating superhero teams, and but they were always wacky and silly, and you know never never really went anywhere kind of a thing. Um, but I was always happy to be doing it, um, and I didn't even consider being a writer. I was always just wanting to to be an artist. That was always what I wanted to do, um, and it wasn't until you know a little later post-college actually that I realized that I I actually would like to write these stories too so that's kind of it was kind of weird I mean I know a lot of friends who just you know peers that I work with and stuff who grew up just they were completely surrounded at all times by comics and they know every comic creator and artist and letterer and colorist and writer and they know all this stuff and I just feel so out of the loop when they start talking shop like that because I just didn't grow up with any of those influences so it's i'm kind of trying to catch up now but you know i guess i got i'm probably rambling a little bit but oh no you're you're good well well, i can tell you all of those uh all of those drawings that you did served you well because uh you certainly uh you're certainly doing a great job these days thanks yeah yeah let's let's get in to camp whatever so what was where did this come from? What was sort of the genesis of this idea for you? I think uh, kind of similar to a lot of my ideas that I have, like whether it was like, I, I don't know if anybody's read, you know, like time shifters and stuff, but camp whatever was, it kind of came together from several different pitches that I had done. Like I knew I wanted to do a book with cryptid characters. Like I really was into cryptids. I love backstory and I liked it. I really wanted to just throw a bunch of them together and do like this, some kind of story, but I didn't know what I wanted to do with it. So it kind of just sets, you know, as a as a half put together pitch kind of a thing. And then I had another idea where there was these kids who had, and I was still kicking around this cryptid idea where maybe there was a a street in ta- in their town where all these character all these cryptid characters like lived, right? And they were kind of, you know, that's where they were forced to live. So there was a little bit of other things going on in the story too, where the people really didn't like them uh, having these monsters and stuff, maybe attending the same school as their kids. So it was segregated and I had all these like other storylines I was going with, but it just, that got a little too, too much for kind of where I like to go with stories. It was, I like where it was going, but I just couldn't figure out what to do with it. And they all kind of sat there. And then one day I was thinking, you know what, I'd like to do like a camp book, like a summer camp book, but I don't know what I want to do with it. I don't want it to just be a summer camp story. Uh, and then I was thinking, well, maybe there's monsters. And I was like, oh my God, I've got all these like half put together pitches. And so I started going back through all my files and I, and I kind of realized I had the bones, you know, of this story already within like two or three different pitches that I had. So I kind of started it from there and that's, that's kind of where it started. So, so it kind of sounds like the, uh, the summer camp idea was the one that kind of triggered all of it to uh, come together. Kind of. And the thing was, too, is like when I had the idea to do a summer camp, there was like a million summer camp books coming out. Uh, 
And a lot of my publishers that I work with, whether it was Scholastic or, or whoever, um, they were like, eh, you know, the, the, the camp stuff's kind of been played out or there's, there's too much of it in the marketplace right now. So that was one of the reasons why I'd kind of put it aside for a while. And then when I came back to it, it seems like everybody was kind of open to the idea again. So it must have, it must have sat there long enough to <laughs> kind of come back around. All right. So uh, I'll ask, where did the idea of uh, of Willow come from? Uh, well, are you talking specifically about her like um, death? Uh, that's part of it, but also just the character in general and her personality. I, I okay. Well, for me. I'd always focused on like boys, right? All most of my characters in a lot of my books were just were just boys because that's or or male anyway, and that's just I think a product of because I'm I'm also a male, you know. It was just mm-hmm. like I it never really occurred to me to to do a book with girls and stuff. I but and to get to your point, I have a daughter now who just turned thirteen, and so I have like this perfect <laughs> model kind of in my house where I can just watch and see the craziness that's happening with her and all of her friends and everything. And that was kind of where Willow came from. Willow's kind of a combination of a lot of, uh, of my, my daughter's friends and my daughter herself too. And um, it just was something I, I, I thought it was kind of a challenge for myself too, to write for girls instead of boys, even though I don't personally think girls really act that much differently than boys do. Um, I know my my daughter doesn't. I mean, she's just as gross as any boy I've ever hung out with. You know, she's got a real dry sense of humor, and I just love that. So that was that was kind of the reason why I was I was trying to do more a more uh, girl focused uh, story. The, I, I guess the having one of each. I guess the only thing I say is sometimes it seems like girls maybe uh, realize maybe when they shouldn't say things more than boys, and that's yeah. about it. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I I just was I just kind of started going with it, and it was I was gonna just see where I could go with it with the character, I, and I wasn't sure if I was gonna be able to do it or not, but I was fully willing to give it a shot, and I was really happy with the way that way it came out. I I would agree with that. I think I think it's an excellent character. So you mentioned the fact that Willow has hearing loss. Yes. Uh where did where did when did you make the decision to? let this be a part of a ca- the character and to actually i mean you i think use really well signing and the fact that she has a hearing aid and she turns it on and turns it off or the batteries like you use that really effectively both to move the character forward but also to to sort of give you extra tools in storytelling and in communicating and in how you how you put what's going on on the page. Um, I don't want to take like too much credit for like being so thoughtful of all this stuff. <laughs> um, but like my, my, I have a nephew who is uh, 17 now, I think, but he was born with um, hearing loss in both ears, um, not fully. And they didn't actually diagnose it until I would, I want to say like early elementary school that he was, ha- cause he was having trouble in school and all that. So now he has two hearing aids and, Although he doesn't use sign language or anything like that, but he he did attend a school like that for a little while. Um, so he did. I I believe he learned some of that too. And that was kind of where I was coming at with Willow too. Like she she has hearing aids to help her hear. Um, she hasn't always been deaf. I was saying like she had gotten sick at some point, but she she knew how to communicate prior to that. Um, so she in my mind anyway, she attended a school maybe where she lived before 
um, where, you know, she was surrounded by kids who actually only spoke with sign language. So she picked it up. She knows how to do that. And that was just kind of part of, it kind of helps her, you know, like it did in the book a little bit too, uh, when she didn't have the, the, uh, the hearing aids uh, functioning or whatever, it helped her get through a little bit. But for me, that was kind of where it started at was with my nephew um, and just seeing how the family kind of dealt with different, um, different things, little curveballs being thrown at them over the years. And, and they've done a really, a really amazing job with that. And I just kind of inspired by that. Uh, that's kind of where I started. And when I was working with my editor at Oni, I mean, she, she's very big into, uh, you know, diversity and, and inclusion uh, with everything. And I am too, but sometimes I need to be reminded of that. I'm just, I don't know. I, I just, it just never occurs to me. And I guess that's just, I'm just probably, a, I don't know. I know I'm stumbling over my words a little bit. I'm, I, I wish I, I wish that I, that kind of stuff just came naturally to me all the time. I, she kind of helped me through that a little bit. And I realized right away that that was going to make the character so much better, so much, so much more um, interesting. If, if, you know, to have something like that, where she is kind of has to overcome that a little bit, but I didn't want it to be, um, I didn't want it to define her. And I just wanted it to be something she has, you know, that she deals with, but I didn't want that to be, you know, how she is defined. And that's why I was, um, I'm sorry, I feel like I'm rambling a little bit or getting off topic a little bit, but that was something I tried to address in the story too, where when people would call it out and she, she just doesn't want to be that person. She doesn't want to be singled out as the person, you know, with the disability of any kind, because she can do everything everybody else can do. I was actually going to make that comment. I think you actually do that really, really well. Um, it absolutely does does not define her. At the same time, she does not shy away from it at all. Like, it's just part of who she is, and I think you did a real good job with that. Thanks. Yeah, that's kind of what I was trying to come up with. I just didn't want, I don't know. I, I think it would have been really easy to slip into something where she was just trying to come up, you know, um, get around that or, or you know, um, struggling to find the word here for that. But yeah, I just, yeah, I just didn't want that to be the focal point of her. I didn't want that to be the first thing somebody used to describe her. Right. Exactly. So let me ask about the other, the other character that I think is, is kind of an interesting, and that's uh, the, the new camp director, Mr. Tudor. <laughs> where did he come from? <laughs> Oh, you know, I don't know where he came from, but I enjoyed writing his dialogue so much because I just made him, I just wanted him to be, he clearly does not want to be there or he's there for other reasons. Right. Doesn't, he clearly doesn't like kids and he's got no, no filter. So he just says what he's thinking. And I just really enjoyed writing that. I just, I would laugh like when he's doing the whole the whole presentation on the first night when he's just going on about he doesn't want anybody to get lost because it's not because he he would feel bad it's because he just doesn't want to deal with the insurance and the, <laughs> right. it's, yep. it's, so you know and that was just something I I really like making him just a jerk I, I probably enjoyed it too much but I think that's that's he he's not a you know a very super three dimensional character you know I mean he was he's basically just that guy who <laughs> doesn't want to be there or doesn't want to be dealing with the kids, doesn't want to deal with anything to do with camp. He, he's trying to do this other thing on the, you know, kind of on the side and keep it secret too at the same time. And yep. he, I, I think he works. I think part of why he works, at least for me, is that it, it, I, it, 
seems like you made a choice that he's not necessarily evil. He just has his own agenda. Right. Yeah. He's yeah. not a bad. He's not right. an evil person. He. Yeah. Right. He's just. He knows what he wants. He got. He's came to that island for a specific reason, but he's having to deal with this other thing. Like if you let Tim Curry play Captain Ahab, you end up in his neighborhood. <laughs> Probably. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A lot of a lot of the supporting characters. I mean, Willow is fantastic, but a lot of the supporting characters throughout this really give it really give it a lot of the life. I think that's in it. I mean, the the twins. The twins are like this amazing absurdist mess every time they show up, and I love them so much, even if they are just absolute shits. Oh, they really are. I think we all knew kids like that, though, and that was kind of what uh, I was pulling from. We, we absolutely <laughs> did. Uh, and, uh, I, 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 I think you used them the appropriate amount. I think I, I, they're they're a character type. I personally think can get overused sometimes, and I, 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 I absolutely loved uh, the amount that they were in here. They were a great distraction. Anytime I needed a distraction, they were great for that. Yeah. And Tudor hated them. And so I just, I love that they made, they, they picked on him the most too, because I mean, he deserved it, but yeah, he just. <laughs> and then I, I think at least for me, my, my final character that I absolutely loved and just loved how deftly he was handled with his introduction was, was Mr. Elric. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh you know, you are certainly I don't want to say you're you're led to believe kind of one thing about him, but like you wouldn't be surprised if, you know, he turned out to not be such a great guy or like they're not immediately taken by him. They're just they're they're cautiously friendly. Like you would be. I I I think I what that's on the whole, that's what I love about this entire story is all of the, especially all of the, the girls are very realistic in how they approach people. There's no like overreaction to things or not reacting enough to things. Like it all seems very appropriate. Thank you. Yeah, that's, that was, uh, I try to, when I, when I write characters, I try to, like, I don't fully script anything out when I'm going. I, sometimes I just start penciling. Like, I know they have to get from this scene to the, to the next scene or whatever. And mm-hmm. so sometimes I'll just start penciling pages and kind of making up dialogue as I go. And I find that sometimes that is the most natural uh, way. I find, I'm, as far as dialogue goes, it feels less scripted to me, I guess. And sometimes I'm, even when I'm, after I've scripted the book and I'm actually lettering the pages, I will be actively changing the dialogue as I go to make it a little bit more casual and, and uh, which is why I can never hire a letterist. <laughs> I, I was going to ask. So is, is, is this, is this just your way of working where you, you're, you're writing and arting and lettering and everything. Yep. Okay. Yep. That's, it's all me. Uh, well, it's beautiful. Thank you. Yeah. It's, it's, it can be exhausting doing it that way too, but I just found out the way I write, I could never hand it off to somebody to letter it because I'm constantly changing it, everything. And I mean, I guess I could maybe hand off the coloring, but I'm just so, I don't know. It reminds oh, me I, a little bit of. I don't play of, well with others, I guess. Well, no, I, I think it reminds <laughs> me kind of, because I, I was thinking this earlier when you were talking about your story of like how you got into it and how, oh, you weren't surrounded by comics and you don't know all the letters and all this. And, and my thinking, my thought then was, you know what though? It, it There is no wrong answer or you're it's not like you're not part of 
you know, uh, you're not a creator because you don't know all the letters and grew up in comp. Like all of everything is valid, and uh, your style is just, I think, what works for you. And I, it's the results speak for themselves. So. Thanks. Yeah, I um, I it's it's I don't know if you guys want to take a little side journey here, but always. Um, oh, we are the big tangent folks. Yeah, let's go. <laughs> so okay, so back in 2004, probably when I was, I was I was working at Hallmark. Uh, designing greeting cards and i worked there for about 15 years after college but while i was there i was like you know i should probably try to get back into comics because i've always loved doing that um i just don't know i don't know anything about it and at the time i didn't know anybody you know who who i didn't have any peers who did it i didn't have any anybody to talk to about it so what i did was i just created this little 24 page little comic uh then i went on to all the indie publishers at the time was like dark horse and oni and uh, i think top shelf too and a couple of these other guys that were all creator owned stuff and they had little submission guides at the top where you could click on that and it tells you you know who to mail it to so i did that i i uh i went to work on the weekend and printed out like 30 copies of this this book and mailed it off to anybody not knowing that that's really not how it works i found out after the fact most <laughs> people go to comic conventions and show it to people and do it that way so here i am mailing these things uh not having any clue what i was doing and i got like rejections across the board within a week uh, which which actually didn't bother me i was surprised that there was any response at all and they weren't like negative they weren't like you know hurtful or aggressive uh or any way um they just were like nah not really what we're looking for but thanks you know keep up the good work kind of a thing or whatever so I kind of just kept going with what I was doing and taking their advice and uh, changing some stuff. And I was just reworking it when uh, editor of Dark Horse contacted me again, like six months later to see if I had made any, any of the changes or done anything new or whatever. And that's kind of how I got my first book, Chicken Hair at Dark Horse. Uh, but then I found out like a year later from that same editor, she was laughing at one point saying, yeah, it was just sitting on like a pile of submissions in the corner of a room and like nobody ever, ever takes anything from that pile, but I guess it had fallen over. And, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, my book just kind of slid out and she, and somebody there saw it and was kind of interested in it. And, um, and at the time I think Dark Horse was thinking about doing like an all ages imprint so they kind of saw my stuff and that's kind of how it happened everything i have accomplished in comics has been completely backwards <laughs> from everything anybody has ever told me so i i got i'm just i just go with the flow now i try not to fight it and i just go with it like sometimes that's all you can or the best thing you can do like yeah. if something's working why why turn around and, and change what's working just because if you're doing no harm, obviously, sure. just because it's not how anyone else gets in or gets noticed. I've just I've just discovered over the years that um, the more I try to accomplish something, the more it never happens. But the minute I take my foot off the gas pedal, that's when everything happens. So I've just I've tried to just chill out about it and just kind of do my thing and not really not really uh, worry about too much of it and just stress out or anything. Just just do it. If it'll happen, if it's going to happen, it'll happen. Took a little while to get there, but you know. So I, I gotta say, probably the only thing that disappointed me about this is poor Violet never got her unicorn. 
<laughs> and, well I, you know i don't want to give you any spoilers but there might there might be this is a three book this is a three book deal so oh boy which All is right. something else that is pretty exciting for me because like when i wrote time shifters uh i had envisioned that to be a, about a three book deal a three book kind of story and uh it never went past book one so book one if you've got i don't know if you guys have read it and it's fine if you haven't but there's some odd stuff going on in book one. I mean, there's the, the, the story kind of, you know, it's a one-off story, but it still leaves the, the uh, leaves it open at the end for the rest of it. But I had planted a lot of seeds that, you know, at least, at least for now, aren't going to be growing. And it's funny because some of the criticism I've had has been about those things. Like, well, these characters were just so weird. Like they, all these henchmen are so bizarre and crazy, but I, and I, I just want to, I just want to grab people and go, there was more. There's like, so much more. That's the kind of thing where I don't come back and I say, well, this was weird. I'm like, no, this was weird. Give me, give me more. Yeah, give right. me the weird. I want the weird in my veins. So, but on this, uh, I, this is the first time I've ever had like a, a three book deal, like a creator owned thing where I knew going in that I was guaranteed two more books. So I could take a little time and plant some seeds, you know, and drop some breadcrumbs here and there. and do do a story that pretty much kind of from start to finish but still leaves it wide open for more stuff to come and i'm i'm just i just i'm in the middle of lettering book two right now and i'm I'm really happy with it so i have i think a pair of questions that sort of fit together here the first is if you're working with an editor but otherwise on your own on a creator-owned book like this as as sort of loose as your process is as much as you are rewriting reinventing as you do more work when when how do you know you're done how do you know you're ready to let go of it and say this this is it this is the final thing or this is at least a finished draft for my editor oh for that part i thought you meant because otherwise i would i would have said uh when they send me the final book printed that's when i know i'm done (laughs) um uh, for me, like, okay, so for 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 a very long time, I, I worked with like stuff like Dark Horse with um, Chicken Hair and a couple other little things I did too. And comics is different because, from, at least from, at least from what I've experienced, where a lot of times they want to see like you know eight or ten or maybe a few more pages and and a synopsis and stuff. And and usually they say, okay, go ahead, you know, that's good, go ahead. But when I started doing, working with Scholastic, um, they want to see the entire book penciled and lettered. That's the first draft the entire book and at first that was like that was infuriating to me and uh exhausting to have to pencil like a 200 page book and then letter it all with finished lettering you know uh and then send it in to get notes on on you know if there's change then to find out that there's changes uh with pages and panels and stuff which is sometimes very hard to just take out a page or a, or a panel or move a panel around it, you know, they, they just, the pages either flow or they don't. And sometimes taking out a panel or trying to force one in there can really kill the flow of it. So it, the first couple of times I had to do that was classic. It was kind of frustrating. It was part of the deal though. I, you know, it was whatever you got to do it, but now I'm finding that I actually prefer it that way. And I've started doing that with like secrets of camp, whatever, which is with Oni, but I still am doing like the entire penciled book with finished lettering because i find that it's so it's so much more clearer for them i don't have to constantly be trying to explain well what they're have what's happening here in this page is this or i didn't write it very clearly there but this is what it says so now it's it's at least clear they can follow the story um usually i'll drop in i do uh, like 3d models in sketchup i know a lot of people do that um 
a lot of times I'll have, I'll have like those in the very temporary models and mm -hmm. stuff dropped in there to, um, to show the buildings and things. But I don't know. I kind of find it's the more I can show and have very, be very clear about what I'm showing, the less problems I have um, later or, or the, the problems are very obvious to everybody. They can clearly see what's missing or where it needs more too. So um, it actually saves me time in the, in the long run. So there is no, there is no, no, I want to revise this perpetually and an mm -hmm. editor has to like drag it out of your hands at the end of the day. No, if anything, I no. If anything, <laughs> when I hand the editor something, I'm like, I want to believe that that's like 99% done. Like as far as the, the, you know, and my editor at Oni, who was actually my editor at dark horse, uh, Shauna Gore, um, way back in the day, um, she is so wonderful to work with, but I think she gets my sense of humor. She understands um, how I work. So she knows exactly how to push and pull to get what she needs. And if there's something, if it's missing something, she'll just, she's really great about um, telling me nicely that I have to fix <laughs> something or if something's not working. But usually I, I know. So usually I already know if something's not working, but I, I turn it in anyway and see if anybody else catches it. And if they don't catch it, then well, maybe. <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe you were second guessing yourself huh? yeah yeah maybe so so that's kind of but honestly once once that's approved and sometimes before it's approved i already start inking it uh, there's just with, with the way i do two graphic novels a year about i don't have time to do a lot of second guessing or rewriting or yeah that makes sense yeah <laughs> these, this this was not a small book this is, no uh, no no it no. wasn't it i did that in six months that's I find that quite amazing. That's I, I mean, I, I couldn't do this in six years. So, you know, that's <laughs> <laughs> I, I just get in a rhythm. Like I'll have a uh, like I know when I'm inking pages, I can I can ink like seven pages a day and it's all digital. So it's seven pages a day. And if I get done with that, then I stop. That's like my treat. You know, if I get done with those pages then I can go have the rest of my day, if there's any left. Um, and the same thing with coloring, I can color like five pages a day. And even though, even if I finish early, I don't push myself further because then I just end up hurting my hand or, or doing whatever. Or I'm not as productive the next day. So I'm, I've gotten really good at pacing myself and knowing when to stop. That's smart. I know a lot of creators yeah. like really struggle with burnout because they just push to the limits constantly. And that's not sustainable. Like, yeah, they say that's not sustainable. They just do it anyway. Um, so the other, the other kind of flip side of this letting it go question, this sort of, how do you break it down? How do you know where to stop is with secrets of camp, whatever coming in as a three book deal, how, cause, cause the first book leaves the, the larger world there to play with, but kind of finishes its own story. It feels complete. It does. As part of a bigger picture. How much of a plan did you walk into book one or do you have now in terms of like, this is where, I mean, you say you're lettering too. So obviously you've got a lot of it answered by now, but this is where book one ends. This is where book two ends. This is the end of book three. How do you sort of build out that process for yourself knowing this is going to be something spread out over three years that you won't touch two thirds of until the end of that first year. That's a great question. <laughs> um, 
I guess I kind of knew where the first one was going to end. I, for me, it's like I know where they're going to begin and when they're going to end. And, and then I just have to fill in the middle. And like the, the wherever is in between that is, is the book. So I knew where the first one was going to end and I knew exactly what I was adding into there, where the, where the breadcrumbs were, right? So, and I tried to do it in such a way that it wasn't, it wasn't completely obvious. There's probably some stuff that you would be like, yeah, that's totally something he's going to be doing in the next book or whatever. But I tried <laughs> to leave enough of it open um, like even, even that creepy dude, you know, that dressed like a clown with a balloon. <laughs> there's a reason, there's a reason for that. And so, I, so it's just, I mean, like, I, I'll just tell you guys what the reason is too. It, I, Cause I don't think it's going to be a big deal, but, but that guy was, that guy was a hunter and he was, and he snuck onto the Island and he was hunting and Elric uh, caught him doing that and hypnotized him. And sent him back home, and now every year he had he's hypnotized to stand on the dock and tell everybody how great Camp Whatever is. That's amazing. He, he hates it, and he has to dress like a clown and stand on there all day. <laughs> he, he hates it, but that's like his backstory. Like that's that wasn't just a random thing. That actually plays a larger part in the story. That's I and there's love more that. to it too. What what exactly he was hunting is, and uh, I'm not going to spoil, but. Yeah, I tried to think everything out as much as I could. And the only well, that thing shows. you can say is you're gonna love it. I love. <laughs> yeah, you're gonna love it. Yeah, it was so creepy. Because <laughs> like yes. I have a balloon. You're gonna love it. <laughs> uh, the, the only people I think I would I would maybe question in this is, and I guess they kind of question themselves is her parents when they hear about all of these <laughs> things that happen at the camp, and then you know what? Go on anyway. You'll be fine. Yeah, like a kid went missing while her father was there. No big deal. Yeah, I like. I, I I wanted to bring that like at breakfast with his wife. That's the first she heard of it too. So I was really appreciating that. Oh, that was so much fun. That's great. You know, and I, I don't. You know, um, there's the uh, the her brother, her little brother too. His name's Griffin. That's actually my son's name, Griffin, and he. Uh, he acts the exact same way. He's just a little turd. <laughs> He's a sweetheart, but he can be a little turd. And I, I had this idea in my head where, you know, if these books did so great, it would be cool to do Willow's whole story, right? And then go back and do a parallel story with just focused on his, on her brother getting to town and going to the house and having ghosts and stuff in the house that he's dealing with. Or maybe Willow comes and goes in the background per this series with their interactions that they have, you know, they cross over in that way, but that just sounds exhausting now. <laughs> I'd uh, read yeah. it. I'd read it, but uh, I abs absolutely. Yeah. I get exactly what you're saying too. Um, and he comes across exactly like every younger sibling, be it male <laughs> or female, where they hate their older sibling, but they want to do everything that they're doing. Yeah. That's <laughs> yeah. And I'm getting to explore that a little bit in the second book too. Cause a lot um, some of the story takes place at, at their house. Okay. And so there's definitely some interaction with her little brother who I just, and basically they're just my two kids. It's like, I, my, my little, my boy is seven years old and he's a turd and, his older sister is 13 and she's an equally a turd so <laughs> to each other anyway you know and exactly. so that's that's something i really enjoy their interaction because i i uh i pull from real life on that <laughs> so we've mentioned the second book a couple of times uh do do you have a a rough time frame do you know 
I believe that comes out not this summer, but next summer. Okay. Excellent. And I'm, I can't remember why Oni wanted to do that, but I kind of, I kind of didn't mind because, so the first book came out in what, April, March, March. Yeah. And, uh, like last week of March. Right. And yeah. so the next book comes out and it's, it's takes place about two months later and it's set kind of close to Halloween. So even though I'm not really doing a Halloween thing, I, the town itself and some of the house is kind of as decorated like Halloween, which I love. <laughs> so that that's kind of just fun it's just in the background and then the the third book will be set about two months later than that closer to uh like winter like it's not going to be a christmas thing because i'm you know like not everybody sure, sure. celebrates christmas but i i'm so excited to do snow just have all that stuff happening in snow and stuff with all those um different cryptids and stuff i don't know yeah. I'm, I'm really excited about that so excellent uh any any inspirations that you uh that that made you that led you into any of this i i can't think of any specifically but that's not to say that i mean i watch so much tv and movies and cartoons and stuff i think it's all had a an impact on me uh even subconsciously you know um i i you know i can't point to anything directly but i just love fantasy stories i love like movies like the spiderwick chronicles and legend and you know um I, I specifically legend I like a lot because I don't know how familiar you guys are with that, but mm-hmm. there's a the, like the scene where where Lily is running through the through the uh, field at the beginning, right, to go find Jack, right. But there's just like little things flying around in the air, and I'm sure it, it was just bugs, <laughs> but the way it's lit and the way it's being filmed, it looks like little berries and stuff. And and there's a warning about you know. St- staying clear of like toadstool rings and stuff and and even though they don't really address that anywhere else i just love that magic feel to it like it's a world that exists um and it has existed forever and these are just people who are kind of experiencing part of it and that is it's things like that that i kind of draw from well uh, i guess one of the other things i want to comment on is uh in the art specifically in the coloring i love the variation there's some times when you very specifically use shadows to as part of the story um but the lighting in general i love how dynamic it is like the panels where she's waking up in the mornings are like super bright right and then you know as it goes through it gets the the colors change and get the shadows grow longer and the it, it, i just i love that use of light that you have in Thank you. I appreciate that. I that's color is something that it was really hard for me for a long time. And I'm not I'm not saying I'm I'm amazing at it or anything, you know, but just I struggled with it for a very long time. And it wasn't until um, it wasn't until Scholastic came back and picked up chicken hair uh, because it was originally Dark Horse black and white. Right. So Scholastic came back in 2012 and they wanted to pick it up, but it had to be colored. And they were like, well, we'll just hire a colorist. And I was immediately like, no, this is mine. I'm going to color it. <laughs> but, but I could tell that they were um, hesitant because I hadn't done anything. So I actually had to almost kind of try out a little bit on my own project. Uh, I had to use sample <laughs> pages to – and that was a real struggle for me because that, up to that point, I hadn't really focused on how I did color or how I wanted to do color. So – it was a lot of experimenting with that. And I tried to like one thing that I try to do with my shadows. And I know a lot of people do this too, but 
I try to use like mostly like pinks and purples and stuff for shadows. Mm-hmm. And I, because I love Pixar movies and their lighting so much, um, there's a lot of purples and pinks and stuff in all of their shadow work. And I just try to do that as much as I can because I just think that that's just gorgeous. You know, to varying degrees of success, I, I, I will attempt that. So I'm pretty happy with, with where I'm at with color, but I do try to push it. And I will say that this book was extra difficult with all that fog. Um, uh, I was oh gonna, my yeah. God. Uh, that fog took quite a while. And there was lots of, um, um, what's the word? I was, you know, masks and stuff to keep it off characters in the foreground because i use it also as a way to like separate you know elements and stuff foreground Mm -hmm. from the background and sometimes there's like five layers of fog there's one in the foreground there's one in the middle ground in the background and it's just the whole my god some of it some was just exhausting doing some of it but i was so happy with the way it came out yeah it the fog was immediately impressive the first time it showed up like yeah you absolutely knocked that out of the park I just like the idea of it hiding so many things on that island. Like there's just so much fog and it's kind of there all the time. And I just love that idea that anything could be hiding there. Yeah. It also saved me some illustration time because I could just hide. I could just not draw where the fog was. (laughs) (laughs) So any... Anything else you want to talk about, or Brian, any other questions you have about Secrets of Camp, whatever, before we talk a little bit maybe about Animorphs? Uh, I can't think of anything. I'll just uh, come in again. Like, I, I, think the, I think the story's wonderful. Uh, the, the art, I, I absolutely adore your, your style. And again, the coloring and lighting, I, it, it's right up my alley. So. I would like to add one thing, too, though, if you don't mind. Um, sure. And this is just kind of a funny little thing that I've I have spoken about a little bit in some interviews and stuff, but like the title camp, whatever people have, you know, so people have asked a couple of times, like, where did you come up with that title? That's, you know, it's different. And originally in for almost two years, this book was called camp nowhere. And I was so married to that because I'd had it for so long. Right. And then about halfway through me working on this book, another comic series called camp nowhere, uh, was announced and it's mm-hmm. nothing like mine obviously but it is still a camp book and it's called camp nowhere and it's a series and i was like damn it um <laughs> so i was so married to that though it's really really hard to switch gears uh to come up with anything different and for a couple weeks i struggled with trying to come up with something else that i liked um and my editor was trying to help me and they had their marketing people were trying to throw out suggestions and you know, when I was already frustrated, anybody else trying to throw out a suggestion just yeah. immediately sounds stupid to me. Right. Like, no, 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 no. That's not what I want. You know, and eventually I started just, my editor was like, so what are we calling it? And I'm like, just, we're just camp, whatever for now, just whatever. I don't care. That was kind of how that happened was me being so over it, uh, <laughs> trying to come up with it. And I ended up really liking this title a lot, but and, and I tried to use it um, as much as I could in the title where people would be like, and I know you guys probably saw it too, where they'd be like, it's camp, you know, whatever, dot, 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 whatever. Right. Because in the story, like nobody remembers the name of the, of the camp. And so they just refer to it as camp, whatever. Yeah. I love, I love that. There's always that, that ellipsis camp, 
whatever. Like even even the sign as as like they come up to it, like the sign is blocked. You can't see the name of the camp on the sign. Like it's a running bit, and I'm always a sucker for a running bit like that. Indeed. Yeah, then you probably like the fog leeches then too. I did. I like yes. the fog leeches. I liked the uh oh shoot, what's the the dream that they're they're well, I won't spoil it because it's it's awesomes. Yes. Oh. Yeah, I want. I, there's definitely something. Guy, that was one of those. I was like, "This is something." I don't know what this is. I have no <laughs> idea, but it's something. I put her. I don't know if you saw if you guys were really looking at the details, but the the counselor is wearing like a like a shirt, like her night shirt. She's wearing is like a person dancing with a possum on it. Yes. At one point, I can't remember if I wrote anything on that shirt or not, but she's definitely wearing a shirt with. Somebody dancing with a possum. <laughs> yeah. And I'm sitting here at like two in the morning sometimes drawing these things, laughing and going, I don't think anybody else is going to think this is funny, but I'm just doing it. Well, there are at least two more of us who think There are it's at least funny. two right. others, yes. Fair enough. Yeah. Well, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about Animorphs a little bit. We've spoken over on Minds at Yerk about it, but... In case anyone who listens to this hasn't jumped over and listened to that, uh, you are currently adapting Animorphs into graphic novels. I am. The first one is out. You are. Have you wrapped on the second at yes. this point? Okay. Yes, completely done. Uh, I guess first question: How how is it? Because I think we talked about this a little bit when you were finishing up with one, uh, and just not knowing how it would be. How is it going back and forth between working on a controlled IP versus doing your own thing? Like how much shock is it sort of switching gears between these books? It's a little bit of shock, but um, one thing I do like, cause I was even just telling you earlier um, that like I'm sitting here lettering wor- and working on uh, the second camp, whatever book, right? But I'm listening to your podcast of like the the uh, episode three of of uh, Minds at York, where you guys are talking about the third book, which is what I'm going to be doing probably starting in like July. And so I'm ramping up the whole time I'm working on this book because this book's already been thought out and done and written. So there's not a lot to think about at this point. So I try to switch gears as early as I can, at least get myself in that mindset. So then when I am done with this book, it's a little easier for me to transition into writing. But the nice thing is, is with the animal stuff, I don't really have to write it. It's already written. I can just start penciling it. And when I come to a point where I want to add jokes or change stuff or move things around, I just kind of do it on the fly. And then if it doesn't work, I just go back and fix it. You know, um, it's, it's a little jarring though. I will say I, there's a part of me that's going to be really happy to be done with uh, camp, whatever, as much as I like it. Because the going back and forth sometimes is is a is 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 hard, and I will say that um, I was offered the job for because it's insane to do to do uh, two three book you know deals graphic novel deals in three years. That's two graphic novels a year. I don't think any actual sane person would choose to do that. <laughs> what happened was is you know I got the. Uh, I got the offer to do the Animorphs books. It was a three book deal. And then contracts, you know, have to be written. And 
it just took forever. And I don't know why. Uh, I think Scholastic just, they just do things differently, right? And it took forever. Then it had to go to uh, Michael and Catherine Applegate. And, you know, and that took a lot longer too. And, if it, and then it had been like six months. And I was like, I haven't had a paycheck. I haven't, I don't even have any work started. I can't just sit around. This could be another three or four months. I don't know what's going on. Or for all I know, it could just completely fall apart. And then I've waited for nothing. And so an editor from Oni, my my old friend Shauna from Dark Horse, um, had said, hey, we're, we're kind of wanting to do some more all ages type stuff. Do you have any pitches or do you have any ideas? And I said, I certainly do. So I sent her some stuff. She she was really excited about this Camp Nowhere book series, Camp whatever. Um, and I was like, okay, that'll be cool. And then they came back and said, hey, would you want to do like a three book deal? And I've always wanted that. So I was like, hell yeah, I'll do that. <laughs> and the day I signed that contract was the same day I got my email back from Scholastic going, hey, green light, we're sending you the contract. Wow. Like, <laughs> um, so that's basically how that happened. Yeah. And I wasn't going to say no to Animorphs. I mean, come on, I'm just going to make it happen. Even if I don't, even if I don't sleep for three years, that's just <laughs> going to happen. So right, I actually don't know off the top of my head. Is there a date for book two for Animorphs? I think it's is October that... 5th. Okay. It, uh, I'm, second looking, book? I'm looking at a site that says October 5th. So Cool. It's probably a little early. I imagine you're probably a little limited in what you can say about it. But is there anything, anything in two that stood out to you as... I mean, three has the obvious new big problem that you've got to work your wrap your head around for storytelling that we'll get to. But was there okay, anything let's, in two? Let's, let's circle back to that too, Alex, just a minute because yeah. I thought of another terrible thing I have to draw in book three. Oh yeah, um, that I'd like to talk about. But let's let's do your book two thing. Um, yeah, was there ahead. anything in book two that was that was either surprising to you, hard to wrap your head around? Like you thought, okay, I've got one, got one in the can this will be smooth sailing now and then just totally pulled the rug out from under you no book two was i felt like book two was pretty straightforward there was a couple parts where it was really really difficult for me to figure out a way since they already do thought speech right that's how they communicate when they're when they're the animals to have tobias secretly communicating with cassie calling Rachel out right for 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 doing you know what she's doing right in front of her without Rachel knowing what was being said uh it was very difficult to convey that so I did my best um do you know a scene I'm talking about like when I I know exactly what you're talking about yeah visually it was really hard to do because it was really hard to do without without overly explaining well yeah I'm just talking to you nobody else can hear me right now but, Which is literally what they do in the original novels every time somebody does that. They always take the time to explain, oh yeah, this is just one-way communication, not a group message. So you guys will have to let me know if I succeeded with it, but I kind of took a shortcut on that and then addressed it later also. So You'll what you're saying is they just slip into a DM, is that? Kind of. <laughs> Pretty <laughs> much. Thought speech DMs. There you go. Pretty much. So well, you said you had something come to mind for book three. Well, yeah. So like book three, I, I know I've discussed with you already. I've got the Tobias thing where he's constantly talking to himself, right? Where he's having inner turmoil. And it's it's, it's already going to be a challenge to kind of show that, like how he's having an inner conversation with himself almost the entire book. 
without having like a bazillion word balloons that don't make any sense flying around all over the pages. So, and I also to... he's a bird, so it's right. not like you can rely on a ton of facial expression either. Exactly, exactly. But then today, when I was listening to your podcast, I realized I also have to draw a giant invisible ship, but I have to be able to show that it's there. <laughs> and I've also got an extremely crowded mall set in the 90s where they're doing a gymnastics uh, event show inside so you know multi-level mall with probably thousands of shoppers and and stores and yeah i'll get through it i'll get through it dang (laughs) look on the bright side you make it the book 25 they're just hanging out in the snow the whole time that'll be nice and easy yeah I was gonna say you can just you can just use your fog from uh, from yeah. camp whatever and uh, have have that disturbed by the invisible. I think just before that scene at the mall happens, I think it'll just cut to later that night and they'll just be summing it up. <laughs> Man, do you remember when you flew through that window? That was crazy. Yeah, and I threw that ball just at the right time. Yeah, man, good good job. That was awesome. That's like when we that's like when we act things out on the podcast, right? It's great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it'll be oh, you know, another thing in, in book three that's gonna be a little difficult is the uh the opening with that really weird live commercial idea that's just not <laughs> like nobody ever did that. So I'm gonna have to figure out something else that isn't just a live television commercial. I just know I am. I'm gonna have to come up with something different. Um, otherwise, I'm going to be laughed out of the room. Uh, so. I feel like there's got to be a super cut of like hyper regional local access channel footage, which probably is still a ridiculous thing to say. Maybe I'll be right there out of the room with you for even suggesting that. So you tell me what you think of this, Alex. You get to you get to be the person who makes the call on this. Okay, this is this All was right. what I was thinking about doing. I was thinking about having his that that used car lot and then maybe he's being the news is there interviewing him like a live interview of the guy who runs the place and maybe price cut Polly. but he's not doing a commercial they're just there interviewing him about something so it's still live and it's still at the car dealership and he still has the bird and he's still a jerk but it's not just a weird live a live used car commercial not I definitely not even new cars. I definitely get yeah the the live commercial thing. I will grant you is I think I think you're right. I think that's a, an elegant solution. Like why would they be live and also have a bird and a used car lot? I mean that guy's not making that much money to have live television. I just can't imagine. But anyway, so that's what I think. At least for right now, at the time of recording this podcast, I'm that's the kind of way I'm leaning. Cool. Is that is that cool? I don't know. Yeah, I. I think it makes complete sense. All right, well, I'm blaming you. I'm going to refer. That is to fine. <laughs> there is there is evidence. There's evidence in the public record. It's all my fault. Now I'll, I'll figure it out. I just <laughs> kind of back and forth on it. Gosh, Alex, just think if that happens, you'll never ever get to to do anamorph adaptations as graphic novels. Well, I I already think that ship has sailed. Uh, <laughs> There's someone way more qualified than That's me already on point. that job. That's my point, yes. <laughs> At some point, though, Alex, I'm going to die. And they're going to need somebody else. I still think there will be people more qualified than right. me. 
Because <laughs> there is no way I'm doing 54 plus books. I'll be I'll be dead. I I have always hesitated to speak aloud, but like, yeah, that's like a 27 year deal. Yeah, even if, if I just two did two a year. a year of those, yeah. Yeah. I'd be like 70 something. Yeah, I don't know if that's if that's something I have to have. I don't have to have that. There are there are a few of them that you can either skip or combine or you know, make some clever edits for if if need be, especially once you get into some of the later books that weren't written by by Catherine and Michael. Well, let me ask you this then. I know I guess we're getting sidetracked here on on your podcast, but yeah. so I've, a lot of people have mentioned. Well, you could combine some books, and it's a thought that I've had too, and a couple of people have had. You know, just throwing them out there, right? But so let's just say we combine two books, right? What what do we call that book? Do we give it a new title, or is it just one of those two books titles? See, that's that's the problem. That's where it starts getting kind of hairy. Yeah, um, no, I mean you definitely have to solve that. I. Or do you just bring in elements from the book and that you're basically just pillaging and throw it into another book? I mean, I think it probably at some level depends on which books you're you're cobbling together. Like if you cobble together the trilogy where they recruit David, like that's just kind of its own thing. You probably are taking equally from each of those books. There are a couple of books that are like the Animorphs go to the Arctic, the Animorphs go to Australia, the Animorphs time travel and then none of it ever actually happened because time travel erases itself once you go back they'll just skip those bro <laughs> uh, i mean really this will be up to scholastic you know they'll, yeah. they'll, be the ones, they'll be the ones making the decisions on on this stuff but it is stuff i like to think about and i'll be honest there are some titles where like you've listened to enough of the show that i'm sure you've heard heard meg or me turn to tim and go so what do you think the title was actually talking about? And then we agree that, like, there's no clear answer. Um, some of the later books, right? Yeah. Like, what is the solution? Well, okay. What was the problem? <laughs> True. Um, that's just me pulling a random title. That actually may be one that made sense. Who knows? But we, we I, I mean... Would I read 54 Animorphs graphic novels? Yes, absolutely. I just, that timeline is ambitious to me. Uh, hey, Alec, that's just one a week for you for a year. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Actually, when you put it that way, that sounds like a nice light schedule. I was going to say, I know you've done much worse. Uh, Chris, I don't know if you, you know this. There was a year where I read a trade a day and wrote it up for our website. That is what Brian is alluding to. A day? A day. On top of on top of reading my regular weekly comics, I read like the equivalent of 3,000 issues of comics that yeah. year. It was That's too much. Insane. Like, like, he told us this idea, and that's exactly what we said. You're insane. This is This is crazy. And then, like, every time we get together to game night for game night for the next year, I'm just sitting there with my laptop being like, no, you guys, you guys got this. I'm I'm here and I'm I'm with you guys. I'm paying attention. I'm having a great time. I just I need to write this. <laughs> That's crazy. That's too much reading. Yes. Yes, it is. <laughs> I don't even know how you process that much reading. I've probably forgotten half of it already at this point if i'm being honest like definitely some of those books i'm like i know i read this i cannot tell you what was in it yeah yeah 
that's that's the kind of the problems i was thinking you're probably going to have yeah that's a lot uh we are at about an hour now um i am sure we will talk more if not here than on minds at yerk about book two a little closer to its release do you want to can you if not i can cut this bit if you want uh talk about the chicken hair news at all before we um i mean just it's basically just what's already kind of out there it's there's a movie coming out it's being it's already well into production um i know i posted a bunch of stills on on my twitter and uh, instagram but i got actually got to see like an eight minute like a it's like a it's like a highlight reel kind of thing but it was um it was so good and i'm i watch a lot of animated movies like you know good and bad and the animation was just top notch and i was not expecting that i was expecting somewhere middle of the road because it's a smaller studio that's doing it um but everything i've read is like they're they're calling it like their most ambitious animated movie to date you know and um, I'm really excited that that's my thing, but uh, I still didn't know what to expect. And I was expecting to, I don't know, I guess I was hoping for the best, but expecting the worst when I watched this thing. And I was just blown away by the quality of the animation. That's and awesome. So I, I'm really that looking awesome. forward to this thing coming out sometime, sometime in 22. Sweet. I think they'd be, I think they'd blow it if they didn't try to bring it out around Easter. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. It's a chicken and a rabbit. I mean, come on. <laughs> like, that's most of an old Cadbury commercial right there. Pretty much. Oh, man. If we could get him on some Cadbury stuff or something. Oh, there you <laughs> go. Chicken hair Easter candy. I'd buy all of it. I uh, did appreciate the chicken hair Easter eggs in Camp Whatever, too. Yes. I try to throw in as many of those things as I can just for my own. There's actually a, uh, I know you're talking about the chicken and hair diner. Yeah, well, but that. also the the anagram. What? The uh, chick churries or whatever. It's just chicken hair rearranged. Oh, is it? Because those are actually cryptids. Oh, I thought that was you having some fun with their names. Because I'm well, almost positive that is an anagram of I chicken hair. You. If anybody would would be able to just identify an anagram, it would be you. Wow, that I, I that's don't, the I most don't even Alex know what to say about this. Yeah, that's like a cryptid thing in a, in and of itself. <laughs> There you go, more conspiracy. Yeah, those are from like my hours and hours on cryptid sites doing research, <laughs> taking notes and stuff. Someone listening is going to be like, no, there's one extra letter, Alex. Fuck you. <laughs> That's his middle initial. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. See, hear that? Heard it here first. Right. Uh, thank you, Chris, for joining us. It oh, has yeah, been a blast. Having. Definitely. Well, I hope I wasn't too boring. No, not at all. I get a little, uh, I get a little wordy sometimes, and get a little off topic. So, and you fit right in. All right, fair, fair enough. Yeah. All right. Uh, Secrets of Camp Whatever, Animorphs, Chicken Hair. Uh, if you if you really want to hear Chris Lewis's mind, come listen to the arc of Minds at York we're doing right now, where he is guesting for <sighs> every book of Humanimorphs, maybe the worst books ever written. He might be. They really might be. They're they're I oh by the way, I put some in that free library. That free little library. <laughs> put the whole set in that free little library for somebody. Oh I <laughs> one day you're gonna walk or drive past it and it's just gonna be on fire. It's just, it's just a give a book, take a book thing. 
kind of yeah exactly. like there's yeah. lots of neighborhoods around here but that do that but then uh my where my son plays soccer it's a like in the behind a, an elementary school in their field and there's I walk around the school you know just kind of walking while he's at practice and they have one of those little libraries outside just filled with books you can just come take one or put some in I put the entire series in there <laughs> I mean probably some kids would like it but well and they're a lot of fun to talk about um I've learned a lot but mostly about <laughs> the co-hosts <laughs> uh brian did you have anything else before we wrap it up um you know what I'll, I'll ask this is a question that i generally ask uh, uh all of our interviews and that is if you had the opportunity to do either a character or an ip that you've kind of always been attracted to, what would it be? I remember being extremely jealous when, um, I can't remember what publisher did it. It's been a while now. They did the Muppets. I'm not sure if it was the Muppet mm. show or whatever, but anything Jim Henson, like I would be on top of that so fast. Like I would, my hand would be the first one in the air. You know, any anything Jim Henson, especially Muppet related though, I would just love to do that. Cause I just, that was, Growing for growing up for me, Jim Henson was literally the biggest influence on me. Okay, that's a great answer. That is a great answer. I love it. Chris, do you have any last words? I got none. None. I've I've used up all of my good words over the last hour. Then thank you again. Uh, I've already said check out Chris's stuff, and I'll say it again when we cut back to the regular episode. Uh, But we hope to. I'm sure we'll have you back at some point in the future. You've got too much stuff going on for us. Uh, we to. know we know there's more uh, Camp Whatever books coming out at some point. So. There is. There is. Well, right. Thanks for having me, guys. This. It was fun. I appreciate the time, too. Yep. Of yeah. course. Anytime. Thank you so much. Thanks. Right. Have a good night. You too. Thanks again to Chris Grind for sitting down with us and talking about his work. Uh, definitely go check out Animorphs. Definitely go check out Secrets of Camp Whatever. Uh, I don't know if, if you had this thought too, Brian, but I kind of expect it. I could not help but think while I read this book that it would be great for people who really love Gravity Falls. I, I, 100% there is a super, super strong Gravity Falls vibe yeah. to this. Yeah. I, uh, I know Chris said that he didn't have anything in mind when he wrote it, and I absolutely believe that. Oh, I do too. I do too. There's, there's no reason to think it's just trying to be that, but I think if you dig Gravity Falls... You should absolutely check out this book. Yeah, and it uh, and I will say it is absolutely all ages. This is yes, yeah, yeah. This is it's a gr- this is a fun fun book. Now let's talk about this week's books. Uh, and I'm guessing from the title of this first one you had on here, uh, this is not an all ages book. <laughs> well, uh, probably not. I I think both covers have dildos on them, so that's <laughs> usually a good indicator. Um. This first book is Alice in Leatherland, written by Yolanda Zanfordino, with art by Elisa Romboli. Uh, this is a, uh, I believe, sort of queer-slash-lesbian... Coming of age is not the right term, but sort of like self-exploration adventure in San Francisco. Okay. Uh, there are some preview pages out. It looks like a lot of fun. Uh, we talked about it when it was solicited. I think Jen and I did. I don't remember if you were on that episode. I don't think I was. I don't think I was. Um, we were both very excited for this book. It's through Black Mask, uh, if memory serves. 
So definitely, definitely excited for that. The next book up, Brian and I have talked about before. We were given a chance to read the first issue ahead of time. The Many Deaths of Lila Starr, number one. Written by Ram V, art by Felipe Andrade, with color assists by Ines Amaro, and letters by And World Design. Yeah, this was uh, very, very much working on it. This is a very different book, but I really, really dug it. Yes. Yeah. Like, surprisingly funny, I think, was sort of our takeaway. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think if you if you read about it, it's easy to assume maybe this is heady and you know a reflection on death and mortality, and it is that, but it's that by way of like a, a funnier sort of funnier sort of entryway than just and, just maybe what you'd expect. And for those of you who are interested, there there is a there is a variant cover called the Death Foil cover. Yeah, so, yeah. Be aware. Champions number six. Uh, normally a number six wouldn't make it on here, but Champions was originally announced as a five-issue miniseries. Yep. So you might have missed that there is a number six. We also have a new creative team coming on. Danny Lore writes. Uh, art is by Luciano Vecchio. Colors are by Federico Blay. And letters are by Clayton Cowles. Uh, Danny Lore is someone we've talked about every now and then. They wrote Queen of Bad Dreams for Vault a couple of years back, which I absolutely loved. They've done some one-shots and backups. They've had stories in Marvel Voices. Uh, they are a really solid writer, and I'm excited to see them on an ongoing. Yeah, Marvel. well, and yeah, that's and that's what I wanted to point out, to be clear, is this is not just like, oh, it's a number, now it's a six-issue series. No, this is uh, this is going to be an ongoing. Yeah. yeah and this is about th- this arc starts with the champions infiltrating roxon to shut down this like awful mobile app that they've put out we also have the first issue of the mighty valkyries uh this is lettered by joe sabino and features two stories one is following jane foster and is written by jason aaron and torin grunbeck with colors by Mat- or, sorry with art by matia de julius uh, the the other story is about the new Valkyrie, who was introduced in the King and Black tie-in Valkyries series. Uh, this is written as well by Torin Grunbeck, with art by Erica Durso, and colors by Marcio Meniz. Uh, obviously, we loved all of Jason Aaron's Thor run. Everything that Aaron and Grunbeck have done with Jane Foster since has also been excellent. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mattia de Julius has done work with them on at least some of that as well. So very excited to get more of these characters. Very, very much so, yes. Uh, then we come to a book that I maybe am just like existentially vibrating in excitement about. <laughs> it is something you and I both picked up on and pretty much predicted i think you very clearly uh when the whole krakoan you know the the jeff lemire dawn of x stuff started like uh brian you just slipped into another timeline jonathan hickman oh what did i say you said jeff lemire oh sorry yeah no 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 (laughs) you're right wow that was just don't know where brains conflated those but sure okay brian's (laughs) over on earth 26 (laughs) yes um no but w- that we both picked up on which was absolutely we knew that a nightcrawler led mutant religion was going to happen 
Well, and there's there's that issue specifically. I think it's one of the ones I brought yeah. to our favorites of 2020 episode. Yep. There's an issue that ends with Nightcrawler saying, "I think I need to start a mutant religion." Yes. Yep. This this is that. It's written by Cy Spurrier, who we love. Yeah. Art is by Bob Quinn. Colors are by Javier Tartaglia, and letters are by Clayton Cowles. We have the Women of Marvel one shot. Uh, writers include, but are not limited to. Natasha Altarisi, Sophie Campbell, Nadia Shamas, Elsa Sunison, and Tool, and others. Uh, artists include Eleonora Carlini, Joanna Estep, Skylar Patridge, Kay Zama, and others. Uh, Marvel's been pretty good lately about putting out the, the lists of who's writing what for these anthologies. I couldn't find one for this one. Um... But very excited for some of the creators and characters and teams on this book. And then Brian. Yes. Last one. Tell me about Old Guard Tales Through Time. Yeah, so uh, super quick before I talk about this particular book. Uh, if you don't know, this was a Greg Rucka uh, miniseries that happened uh, probably about a year and a half ago or so. Um, it is now a Netflix series, which is actually pretty darn good. Yeah. Um, And this is... um. This this is going to be an anthology book about uh, a lot like Black Hammer Visions, where there's yeah. different teams that come on to tell different stories of uh, the the old guard, the characters in different parts of time. This first one is Greg Rucka and Andrew Wheeler again, um, but some of the folks who are going to be coming up are Vida Ayala, Brian yes. Michael Bendis, Kelly Sudakonit, Matt Fraction. So yeah, uh, d- just know that. And, and, know that this is going to be really 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 good so awesome yeah that's it that's it in that case we would like to thank chase parker for our intro voiceover this week i actually spent about three hours catching up with chase on the phone a couple of nights ago oh nice yeah panelology is a member of the certain pov network if you're looking for other cool podcasts about popular culture go check out certainpov.com you can visit us at panelologypodcast.com, support us at patreon.com slash panelology, get merch at bit.ly slash panelologymerch, capital P, capital M, or send us questions, comments, or whatever at bit.ly slash panelologymailbag, capital P, capital M. I'm Alex. And I am Brian. You know what you should do this week, Alex? Uh, same thing I do every week, try to take over the world. Go read comics. CPOV. Certain POV.com.